Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. My guest today is Becky Anison, the writer and designer behind a bunch of awesome games, including When the Dark is Gone, a game about grown-up and kind of traumatized Narnia kids from the Seven Wonders anthology, and Lovecraft-esque, which she co-created with Josh Fox. Her new game, Bite Me, is exactly what it sounds like. Sassy, trashy werewolf fiction that I am here for. Powered by the apocalypse. Let's jump right in. Today is a good day for me. Mondays are excellent days for me. I know that today is Blue Monday in the UK, which is supposed to be the worst day of the year. Yeah, I think it was something made up by marketers to try and persuade people to buy fancy foreign holidays. Wow. That somebody somebody's in totally unscientific research and said, yeah, this the th- third Monday in January is the day that everyone has forgotten over Christmas and everyone has broken all their New Year's resolutions and they're just sick of the winter. And you know what you should do about that? You should book a holiday. <laughs> wow that is such like a what a, what a chilling thing to make up like I feel like American marketers make up you know like kind of exaggerate Valentine's Day a little bit so people will buy chocolate and then in the UK people just make up like sad day day of sadness, sadness. Yeah. <laughs> you know it gets you to the same place in the end still gotta buy shit it does but I had a really good day today, so I don't care. My New Year's resolutions are going brilliantly because I don't set new I don't set New Year's resolutions. I set goals. I'm very I'm one of those kind of people who's very into planning and goals, and I have a bullet journal and and I keep it up and that sort of thing. So I just like go through my to do list and hit my hit all my beats, and I'm good. You're fine. Okay, I just started. I just started bullet journaling. Oh. In in an effort to do less, like to be okay with having accomplished less, hear me out. <laughs> because when I was when I was doing like Trello or or Asana or whatever, I would just it would just felt like there was an endless list of things that I could just constantly put like just add and add and add more and more and more stuff. And then if I wanted to move it to a different day or whatever, I would just like pull it over to another time. But the whole bullet journal thing where you have to actually say, like there's that, you have to copy it out like longhand. And it actually just gives you a chance to be like, do I actually care about doing this? Or is it just still here? If I, if I can't even be bothered to write it all the way out, maybe I don't actually care about accomplishing it. So that's, that's my hope, but I don't know. We'll see. I'm using it for all kinds of stuff. Tell me about your tell me about your bullet journaling. I need to learn. My bullet journal. Um, so for me, having a bullet journal is because I like physical artifacts. And I like writing down my to-do lists in an environment which has no temptation to, oh, I'll just see what's happening on Twitter. Or, oh, I wonder if somebody's replied to me on Slack. Or, oh, have I got an email coming? And like just being able to <laughs> process and write my to-do list free of being in a reactive mindset if you know what I mean, it's very good for me. My goals are published by me. <laughs> <laughs> that very tangible. That's what I like about it. Very like what are, what are the, the S-M-A-R-T of goals, you know, specific. 
I forget the other ones. Measurable, achievable. Uh, I can't remember the R. Uh, time bound is the last one. I know that. So it's published Bite Me by the end of the year. I would like to go to Dragon. Dragon Meat is our big convention. I've heard good things. It's lovely. I love Dragon Meat. Part of the reason I love it is because it's only one day. So you don't, and I have children. So I can't really go to like a three or four day long convention. Not really. Um, and I'm not sure I'd really want to be away from them for that long. But so Dragon Meat is just one day and then you just pack everything into one day. So it's a very full on day, but because everybody's there. So everybody you need to talk to is there. Because England and Britain is so tiny, everybody comes. And it's the, always the first weekend in December. So if I can take it, if we, you know, if we've got a stall there, which we probably will have because we're part of the Indie UK Design League. And uh, we're planning on having a, the, the design league. The league is planning on having a stall there next year. So if I can take Bite Me and have it on the table at that, that trade convention, then I'd be like, hey. Tell me about the Indie Design League. I like the term league. I'm already in. It sounds very official. <laughs> so basically, it's four small press indie RPG publishers. And it, it basically started for the most kind of ridiculous of reasons that our there's another big trade show here called the UK Games Expo, and the stalls are like horrifically expensive for an, a small press publisher on their own. But if four of you get together, then you can split the cost and you split the people on the stall. And so it kind of started out from somebody saying, hey, I want to do a UK Expo, but why don't we just split a stall? And then we thought, you know what, actually being able to have a small group of people who know each other who we can promote each other's games we can play test each other's stuff you know we can we have our own discord channel and you know sometimes we'll just post questions like okay so i'm having a bit of trouble with my vat and because everyone's kind of in the same space of being just really quite relatively small i mean the i suppose the spire guys are quite big now actually but so it's it's us that's me and josh black armada it's chris longhurst's company chris i don't know if you've heard of pig smoke mm, no I have not. Tell me more. Pig Smoke is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, which is, it's unpleasant academic politics. It's a university for magic. So I don't know if you've read Terry Pratchett's books. I haven't. I think I read part of the book that he wrote with Neil Gaiman, unless I'm thinking of someone else. Oh, good omens. Well, he, he had an institution called the Unseen University, and I think it's partially based on that. So it's like, imagine a modern day academics trying to climb the greasy pole to get tenure but their research subjects are things like alchemy and and that sort of thing and it's it's really nicely written so that's chris and then uh, i don't know if you're familiar with legacy uh yes yeah yeah life among the ruins life among the ruins so jay isles's company is one of them um and then grant howitt's company which he runs with his best friend chris and his wife mary is the other one. That's so nice. So so it's just like a some cool pals who are helping each other out. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the scene here is quite small, but it's what I like about it more than anything else is having people who are kind of at the same stage of business as you are, who are kind of trying to do it on their own or do it around their jobs or their kids or whatever. And you can just sort of say, oh, gosh, you know, what what rates are you guys getting on warehousing for your games? Or... Who's your distributor over so-and-so? Or has anybody done a foreign translation? What are the things I need to watch out for? And 
because everybody's on the sort of same scale as you, the the answers they give are generally like in the ballpark of what you need to hear. Because if I ask that sort of question to Wizards on the Coast, what do you think be aware about for foreign translations? The advice they would give me would probably not be relevant necessarily. <laughs> Yeah, if if you were able to get the advice at all. Well, that is very true. It's very true. <laughs> like the, there is something nice about being with people who who have some skin in the game, right? Who want to succeed, but who are not in a competitive mindset at all. Who aren't like you know, I'm paying my mortgage with this thing, and I need this to work, and this is my this is my whole universe. But rather, who are yeah, who are just who are kind of doing it. They want to do it. They want to do it right, and they recognize that, you know, they couldn't have done it without someone helping them out. And so they're going to help you out too. And, and so on around it goes. And I think we're all trying quite hard to make things more equitable, I suppose, is the right way of saying it. So I still write. And I tell you what, it's been amazing for my role playing writing. Really? Okay. Proper, tell me more. Yeah. Tell me more about that. I was just, uh, it's just, it's all the stuff that I wish I'd known before I started writing role-playing games, which is really like basic stuff. And I know you're going to laugh at me, but I had no idea about styles. What do you mean? So like, if you go in a WordPress document... Oh, styles like like formatting styles. Yeah, formatting styles. I had no idea about styles. So like, Bite Me was written two years ago, or started writing it two years ago. It's not in styles. I'm trying to put styles back in after the fact. And oh my God, it's painful. <laughs> you know, and so and, and so, no idea about styles. For most of my career as a lawyer, you're expected to write in the passive voice. You're encouraged to do so. You're encouraged to write in a, qu- a way which is equivocal, which is not very easy to read. And now I write for a company which is at its heart about journalism. So now I get sent on kind of. Here's loads of training to do on how to be a good writer, and how here's a style guide with some important things in, and here's how you use styles in Word. And it's like, <gasps> but this is amazing! This dark knowledge that I had no idea about, you know. And I kind of I cringe at the thought of what my poor old copy editor had to go through in my first two role playing games, as I just vomited my thoughts down in this kind of barely barely concealed kind of structure. <laughs> oh my goodness what was I doing but I wish that younger Becky had been told actually you can make money at writing you can make money at writing magazine articles or doing this or that whatever and build up a portfolio and stuff because I I thought I couldn't and I think that I'd have started a lot earlier and a lot younger if I hadn't been told that I needed to have a steady career yeah I mean writing was something I always wanted to do and I definitely always got the like okay but you can't do that you can go write something if you want, but you can't, you know, be a writer. It's like, well, we have the concept of a writer. Somebody is doing it, you know. Somebody out there must be doing it. <laughs> They're on top of a mountain somewhere. I'll climb to them and get their secrets. I, I'm sure I read a book once. That must have been written by a person. Yeah, somebody, somebody did that. Who? But who? Yeah, exactly. But it, it's always, it's someone else, right? Right? Implied in you can't, you know, be a writer is like, well, I personally can't. And like, why not me? Yeah, I could be the next J.K. Rowling. And I tell you, I tell you one thing for certain: I won't be the next J.K. Rowling if I don't actually try. If I let people tell me it's not possible, you know. Like one of the things that's happened with Bite Me, which has been quite exciting, is that part of the reason I wrote it was because I really love werewolf books. I'm a real, I'm a real sucker for a trashy, sexy paranormal romance book 
if it has got a load of werewolves in, you know, I'll just lap it, lap it up. And so when I was trying to pull together the Kickstarter, I was like, well, this is the writer that I love. This is the writer, and I've read all of her werewolf books, and if she said yes to be a stretch goal author for me, then I would basically wet myself. But obviously she won't. But it felt important for me to just send her an email saying it, even though like it'll just go in her slush pile or her her assistant it'll just sit on it wherever you need well all of that stuff I was like in order to kind of complete the circle from where I got the inspiration from I'm just going to send her an email saying would you write a stretch goal I need it to be max I need it to be around 1500 words I can only afford to pay you 150 dollars for that but this is this and she said yes and I was like once I picked myself up off the floor <laughs> I phoned I phoned my layout artist who's also my best friend, who's also a massive fan of this woman's writing, and said, You'll never guess what happened. <laughs> and then she had to pick herself up off the floor. So hopefully that will definitely come off. <laughs> but it just it's just one of those things like if I if I had allowed myself to think, well I won't do it because there's no point, then it wouldn't have happened. Anyway, how's your day? My day's good. I mean, you're you're describing you're you're describing exactly what happened with Starcrossed, which is the game that I put out last year, and and the art by Jess Fink. I was like, well, you know, the perfect person for the job would be Jess Fink, right? I've been reading her comics since I was a teenager, and I'm her style is perfect, and you know, like her her illustrations were on kind of the vision board. So I was like, yeah, we we need to get someone who can kind of do this style. Not going to be as good, obviously, but I mean, you know, th- this would be sort of the ideal. And then, you know, someone just suggested asking her instead of like just hoping for someone that was a little bit like her, but not as, you know, not not quite there. And so, I, you know, I was lucky enough that um, my dear friend James had worked with her on something else. And so there was kind of a little connection, but it was also just like that person is also a freelancer. They want to do things generally. You know, like uh, just as we want to do stuff and generally if a job comes in our lap, we'll, and it's something cool and we'll do it. Um, she was like stoked to work on it. And, and it was not only am I just happy that she could work on it, but also like she got it. Like it was so easy to work with her because I could be like, I don't know, what about like an astronaut and a fawn? And she was like, yep, no problem. Got it. Here it is. This, I already was already drawing it before you finished talking. So yeah, it's, it's, um, you're reminding me. Uh, this uh, illustrator who I was speaking to last week said that she set for herself this goal of 100 rejections. She wants to get rejected 100 times. And so, you know, she may not get there in, in one year. It's like within one year. And I think she was inspired by some writer that she follows who's doing the same thing. Um, but yeah, she said, so it just means that I I have to just apply for absolutely everything uh, you know, she said, I, 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 there's all these shows that I never would have thought that I could table at, that I'm going to try to table at. And there's these, you know, jobs that I'm not going to, I w- would not necessarily have submitted for that I'm going to go for, collaborations I'm going to try to do. And, and yeah, and hopefully by the end of it, I'll have a hundred rejections, maybe not. And I just feel like that's so brilliant because there's so much that you're going to get to do that you never would have done. You might also get rejected a hundred times, but then even then you'll just get used to being rejected. So it's easier in the future. I don't know. I mean, are we just saying like, put less effort in, be less good. Is that, is that the moral of today's interview? No, I'm not. No, no, I don't. That My message is not be super relaxed. That might work for other people, but 
I want my stuff to be really good. I want my stuff to be really polished. I want to have got it as good as I possibly can get it for my own satisfaction. And that's not to say that I think that people should be like super perfectionist about things, because I don't think that they should, you know, because perfect is genuinely the enemy of the done. And because I don't really believe that perfect exists. So you're just chasing something which isn't a real thing. But I want my games to, I I just want them to have an elegance of design to them. I want them to, 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 if you kind of mapped it all out logically, then you would sort of see that there was an underlying pattern to it. A kind of a coherent, logical, underlying pattern. Right. That there's no open loop. No, there's no open loop. Everything is in there for a reason. And and when you look at that little bit of mechanic and you realise that actually that little bit of mechanic ties into that system there and that ties into that system there and that supports the fundamental loop of what I'm trying to achieve with this game. And then you'd be like, oh, I see with the what with the what now. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I kind of, yeah, that's important to me. Do you, when you, when you talk about that, the underlying system, do you find it more satisfying to kind of conceal that? Or to have it really front and center and to let people sort of play with all the switches and have the hood open. Because I'm thinking of When the Dark is Gone, your game in uh, the Seven Wonders anthology, which I very much enjoyed. And it's very, probably deceptively simple. So When the Dark is Gone is, it is deceptively simple. And I remember, I remember very clearly when I first read it and I wrote it, and I showed it to Josh and I said, I've written this game and it does this thing. And he said, oh, that won't work. And I remember thinking, haha, I'll show you. It totally will work. Because I wrote it as a personal response to Fiasco. Hello, Jason. <laughs> Hello, Jason, if you're listening. <laughs> um, and the personal response to Fiasco was this, that I, I love the GMless nature of Fiasco. I loved the way that it distributed creative control. But... I didn't feel that I was able to make an emotional connection with the game in that short space of time. And prior to that point, I did enjoyed some very emotional experiences role-playing. They'd all been across campaigns. And so I was struck, my response to Fiasco was, oh, I wonder if I could create a game which would be a one-shot game that would have be able to elicit an emotional response in the players without kind of a, a whole campaign, many, many sessions of build-up and lots and lots of gloriously black detailed background. Could I do it like Fiasco with no prep? It's a prepless game. And I thought, well, how would I do that? How would I do that? And, and so When the Dark is Gone was kind of my response to that. It was saying, how do I create a game which requires no prep and which will elicit the same emotional reaction and response that you might get from a very long-running campaign where you're really invested in your character can I do that can I do that in three hours four hours and then to make it even harder for myself I thought you know what I'll say there's no conflict resolution mechanic because that'll make it fun and then I kind of built it from there I'm intrigued by what you mean when you say that it's deceptively simple though well because when I think about my experience with that game I think about in-character moments, right? And things that were said. And I remember the feeling in the room. But if pressed, I couldn't tell you how that game actually works. <laughs> and so that was obviously not the memorable piece. And yet I know, as someone who can make a deceptively simple game, 
But that does not mean that there's no rules or that it's truly, I think when people say rules light, I think that that doesn't always mean that it's like less complex or that the rules don't matter, right? I think that's that's what I'm trying to say is that even though I don't remember what the rules really were at all, I know that that does not mean that they are inconsequential and it was just about a fictional setup. Ah, well, I can tell you if you want to, if you want to know the kind of what's under the hood of that game. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's open it up for the listeners. So what is under the hood of When the Dark is Gone is that there are almost no traditional player-facing mechanics. So the reason as a player that you thought there was no system was because you saw nothing other than really fictional prompts. So you set up your character, you set up your relationship, your relationships with the other people in the game. I don't know if it's explained anywhere, in it, but it's uh, When the Dark is Gone is a game which is set in therapy session, and it's a group therapy session with people that you have pre-existing relationships with. And you're there to kind of work through those relationships. So the starting point is you set up some relationships and you're kind of workshopping it really like a LARP. Now, various people have said that When the Dark is Gone is a stealth LARP. They're absolutely right. My background background started in freeform LARP writing and that might connect some dots for people. But what what system there is, if you like, if you, I don't want to get into a big row about what constitutes system and what doesn't. But I think that what I kind of, would say is that the system in it is all hinges on the character of the therapist. So unlike Fiasco, when the darkest gone does kind of have a GM. The GM is the character of the therapist, but the therapist has a radically different role to what you'd normally see in a role-playing game when you think of a traditional GM. So the first rule, the first bit of system, is the GM creates nothing. The therapist creates nothing in the game. They only facilitate the creation of the players. So the GM should create no plot, no background, no nothing. All their entire role is about is asking leading questions and prompting the players and trying to both provide the players with some support because it's a lot easier to improvise the answer to a question that somebody is asking than it is to create something from whole cloth so they are kind of providing this background framework for you and there's a lot of guidance in the game about how as the therapist you construct that background framework to support the players almost like kind of like almost like midwifing their story if you like and so all of the rules and that sort of thing are all on the therapist and so the therapist is basically creating this environment and this support hidden support structure for you the players to completely go into character and by which I mean you don't have to make any decisions about what skills to use you don't have to roll any dice you don't have to break your character at any point to have a conversation about mechanics although you might want to break character to have a conversation about safety and that's a good thing that we would encourage but there is no pause in inhabiting your character for out of character concerns. And that allows you to go very deep into your character in a very short space of time, which replicates the whole, can I have that emotional experience in the same length of session that I would be able to play a fiasco game. And and so it seems a little bit like your answer to, how do I have a really amazing tabletop experience in a short span of time, 
The answer is a tiny little bit to LARP instead. I kind of wanted to do that in a way that people didn't realize that they were doing dirty LARPing. But yeah, basically it is. <laughs> that's that's a little bit of a theme in uh, in Seven Wonders, which is a wonderful anthology to check out. There's a couple of games in there that have got like this sort of little like, well, you don't need to say LARP. You can sit at a table the whole time. That's fine. You don't need to, you know, get up and walk around. And who's to say what a LARP really is anyway? Anyway, here's your character. Uh, go ahead and play. <laughs> I thought I'd gotten away with it by making everybody have a character sheet. Because I thought if people were sitting at a table with a piece of paper in front of them, they wouldn't think that they were LARPing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's only that I was able to see through it because of my my LARP goggles that I, I wear at all times. And so I think everything is a LARP. I'm standing standing in line at the post office and I'm like, you know, in a way. <laughs> so that's that's just me and my perspective uh, we should talk about your werewolf game your powered by the apocalypse definitely a tabletop role-playing game uh werewolf game called bite me which is such a provocative name it tells me so much about the things that you are prioritizing uh well or i think it does anyway what what are the things about the werewolf fiction that you are prioritizing with this game what am I prioritizing about werewolf fiction? So I am prioritizing pack life in all of its kind of meaty glory, I suppose. And and that means a few things. And and Bite Me as a title is deliberately provocative and kind of deliberately ambiguous in the sense that one might say it for all sorts of reasons in many sorts of different contexts. So Bite Me is about pack life. And the reason for that is that I have always been absolutely, what I love about werewolf novels and werewolf fiction is not the kind of really traditional werewolf monster stuff the, the kind of the very very early werewolf stories where it's really just a man turning into a beast they don't necessarily even have any recollection they did it and they just got a murderous rampage i think the sweet spot is in the concept that a werewolf pack might be more of an emotional place to live and inhabit than a human group of friends and the reason I say that is I kind of took inspiration from the idea that you know what if you're in a werewolf pack with these people who've got superhuman abilities who can smell when you are anxious you know who can maybe tell if you fancy them because they can detect it in your scent or in something else then you don't have as many secrets and that maybe you would be able to be more open emotionally. But at the same time, you're living in this world of violence. You have this violence inside of you and you are going to, that is going to come out in your relationships with people. You are going to do stuff which is going to screw up your relationships. And then you're going to have to deal with it afterwards because pack is for life. So I was very kind of taken with the idea of this really, really close-knit group of people who didn't have the same fetters on them that we as human beings put on ourselves in our relationships with each other who didn't hide their nature and by nature I don't just mean their werewolf nature I mean any sort of part of their nature you know they just they didn't have the capacity to hide it necessarily um I think that was really fascinating so getting to play with both that kind of hyper masculine violent superhuman element but also saying in pack, you talk about your emotions because everybody knows anyway. You're not hiding anything. 
And if you do, someone will needle you till you tell them. And if you screw something up, if you are violent to somebody, then your pack will call you on it, or someone in the pack might call you on it, or or they might not if you were doing it in defence of the pack. But there was there's a poem by Eve Ensler who I I really love the work of Eve Ensler. She wrote the Vagina Monologues, which I'm not sure how long ago they came out, but I remember reading them and just loving it. And then she wrote another poem a while ago, which I'm pretty sure you can find on YouTube. And I think she did it in a TED Talk, actually, so it's very easy to find. And the poem is called I Am an Emotional Creature. And Because she did this interview with a group of girls, and all of the girls were saying, oh, gosh, I hate being a girl. I hate being a girl. It's awful. Being a girl is terrible in this society for, insert, incredibly valid list of reasons. And Eve Ensler said that one of the girls just stood up and said, I love being a girl. I am an emotional creature. And and it's a lovely poem. It's a really lovely poem. And I just thought that that should be how a werewolf pack is. You know, they're not just hyper-violent, mindless beasts. You know, when you are when you turn into a werewolf at the full moon, when you have that different range of instincts and experiences, well, why would the same sort of human concerns about not talking about your feelings be so relevant to you. So Bite Me is a game where I have tried to design a mechanic and a system which incentivizes, if not requires you to have emotional interactions in character. Tell me about that. Like let's let's get into the crunch a little bit. How do you how do you put really really strong emotions i can see why you would like that's just juicy gameplay yeah but but how do you approach that uh from a design perspective i think the first thing and i've said this to other people before this is kind of like a bastardization if you like of a well-known management phrase but i think in our world what gets mechanized gets done what you put in a system is what will happen at the table the reason that D&D has lots of fighting and dungeon crawling in it is because it spends 30 pages discussing weapons, you know? And so people see that they have a hammer in their hand and everything becomes a nail. So if you want to get emotional interactions in games, you have to make emotional interaction become somebody's hammer. And so for the sort of people probably like, I'm guessing you and me, who will probably bring that sort of emotional interaction into our role-playing anyway. This just rewards you for the thing you were going to do anyway. But for people who need that kind of extra push, the system does a couple of things. So firstly, you create culture as a pack. Out of character, you create the culture of your pack. And that will include slang, maybe rituals around food, all of these sorts of things. Then every time you display your pack culture in a scene, you get XP to add to your advance. You get XP in other ways as well, but one of the ways you get it is by displaying your culture. The more you display your culture and the MC is encouraged to take some of that slang and bleed it into your out-of-character interactions as well, the more you will feel like you're a pack with your gaming group. Because you are, you you know. How much deliberate bleed are you putting into this game? Like, you do you, you want to make gaming groups feel a little bit like werewolf packs i do want to make gaming groups feel a little bit like werewolf packs to answer your question how much bleed have you put in this game or how much bleed have i mechanized all i will say is there's a lot of safety mechanics in this game because i am anticipating there's a lot of bleed 
That is so exciting. I, and I love that it's it's kind of wearing it on its sleeve. Well, like werewolves, you know, there's no point hiding it. So that's one of the ways I'm kind of, I'm trying to set up a, little, a nice little friendship feedback loop just in the way that we bring in our culture to the table. So that's number one. Number two is a mechanic, um, which is probably the mechanic I've spent my entire role-playing life waiting for in a game. But there's a mechanic called spill. And there's another mechanic called provoke spill. If you spill, and that means sharing something raw and vulnerable about your emotional state with another player, then you get to add pack pool points to well, a pool, I suppose, pack points to a pool. If you provoke someone to spill, which is another move, which is basically needling them until they tell you what's wrong, then you get to add pack points to the pool. Pack pool points do two things. So firstly, the first thing that they do is that they can be used a little bit like an assist. So if you're on a mission with a member of your pack and you've botched a role and you really, really want to not botch that role, even though, as we know in PBTA, a hit really just means a different type of story, which is not something to be afraid of. But if you really, really wanted to succeed in that role, a pack mate you're with can spend pack pool points to boost you up until you've succeeded. But that's uh, and so they can use it as an assist. The other thing is there's something called pack moves. When you are acting as a pack, you have access to grossly overpowered superhuman moves. They're very expensive in terms of pack pool points. So in order to be able to afford them, you have to have a lot of emotional conversations. Oh, because that's how you bond. That's how you bond. That's what makes you into a strong pack. The other thing is, is that a lot of the other things in the game, including the moves, the relationships that you set up, are designed deliberately to create fodder for you to talk about in your spill move. So there's a mechanic called Dominate. And this can, if you get a really strong hit, if you get a 10 plus on your roll on this, then you can get another player to do something they don't want to do. And I will say there are safety mechanisms around. There are some limits on that for safety reasons. But you tell somebody to go and kill someone. They say, no, you roll a 10 plus. They have to go and do it. They don't have to like it. They might massively resent you for it, but they will do it. And maybe they feel guilty that they couldn't resist your domination. And all that is, is grist for the mill. Save it all up, use it in your spill moves. There's a move called give in to the wolf, which is a deliberately tempting move. If you give in to the wolf, then you get to mess around with your stats and bump up your um, like fighting stats really high. It lets you do lots of extra harm or gives you extra armor, all this sort of stuff. If you roll a, a miss, a naught to 6, the GM takes over your character for the next scene and they will do something awful with it. You will do something awful. You will kill somebody who mattered or you will blow the secret of the plaque in public or you will do something awful. Because I did want there to be that slight sense of you're playing a werewolf game. You want to be playing around with the sense of I might lose control. Now, as a player, you can choose whether or not to make the move in the first place, obviously. So you still have choice. But if you choose to run the risk because, oh, it is tempting. It is really tempting when your back is against the wall and your pack are down to nothing. And you just feel like you have to do it to save the day and you mess it up. And it's just grist for the mill. You just 
channel that right into your spill move. So you have have all these really, really hard, really, really violent moves in the game. And a lot of the point of them is to create material and story to fuel the emotional mechanic. It sounds so juicy. Thank you so much. I, it's been a labour of love. I really love werewolves. <laughs> oh, and that comes through. Like when I say trashy, I want you to know the way in which I mean trashy. Like trashy fiction in the way of just like, mm, like the sweetest, like like sugariest sort of candy deliciousness. Like that is what is coming through. Is you yeah. can you can create just the most hyper exaggerated emotional situations that really loaded situations that you know are just gonna just pop off like fireworks how has how has playtesting gone oh it's beautiful it's been beautiful it's a thing of beauty i've i've really enjoyed my playtesting which is good because normally i have to i'm going to confess something now i hate emceeing and i hate gm i find it's such a pain uh, i find it super stressful <laughs> it's really i find it so stressful um because i I so I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I desperately want everybody to have a good time, and if they don't, it's my fault, and all of that, all of that comes on. So I find GMing very stressful. So I try and write games that I don't find it as stressful to GM because they play to my strengths. That I the things I'd be doing anyway. So it's, the mental load is reduced for me. Um, so sorry to anybody else who picks up these games. These games are basically codifications of my intuitive GMing style to make it easier on myself. But I have had some lovely playtesting and I've had a lot of really lovely playtesting with players finding these moves like dominate and give in to the wolf, not wanting to do them. Because you wouldn't, you don't want to dominate somebody. It's not a nice thing to do. It's not a nice way to behave or, you know, all of that sort of stuff. You know, we, t- you know, we, we definitely bring our sort of 21st century morality with us. And that's okay. That's cool. But watching players with that 21st century morality, not wanting to dominate, not wanting to give in to the wolf, and then realizing when the back is against the wall, it's just, it's just the easiest way to get something done or I have to do it to protect the pack. And just watching that little kind of, flip moment in them of oh gosh I'm gonna do this aren't I I'm, I'm gonna do it I'm gonna do it and and seeing them kind of make that leap and thinking yeah my mechanic really worked there I just made it too tempting for me brilliant I was so pleased I did that and then there's been some great spill conversations you know there's been some really really lovely kind of people who really have been kind of watching the fiction and watching when a dominate move has caused them to do something they didn't want to do and really kind of throwing that back in somebody's face at a good moment and you know kind of I've, I, I have two rules I call them Anison's rules because I'm trying to make other people call them Anison's rules I have two rules of role playing and my first rule is as an MC or a GM Hold off talking for two to three beats longer than you are comfortable with, because the chances are one of this is a, this is a codified rule in When the Dark Is Gone. Hold off speaking for one to two beats longer than you as the GM are comfortable with, because chances are one of the players is going to get uncomfortable with it. They will rush to fill the gap, and that is when something magical will happen. And that came from the first playtest session of When the Dark Is Gone. Because I think as MCs, we feel like, oh gosh, I've got to carry it. If things have gone too quiet, the players are going to get bored. It's my fault. I need to I need to create an enemy or I need to bring in a thing or describe something or move the action on. 
And I had that moment in the first protest of when the dark is gone, and I was just about to say something because I was like, this is too awkward. And suddenly one of the players around the table who had just been sitting there really quietly just gushed out this massive secret about their character. And I just thought to myself, if I had stepped in there, I would have stopped that piece of total magic from happening. That would have been such a shame. And then I thought, gosh, how many magical moments like that have been stopped from happening? Because the MC thought, God, I better fill this silence with something. This is awful. Okay, and and Alison's second rule is a secret is something you throw in somebody else's face at the most dramatic and inappropriate moment. Because <laughs> I've played in a lot of games where people kept secrets and they kind of hoarded their secrets. And after the game was over, it was like, ha ha, you didn't really realise I was this traitor, lover, your father all along or whatever. And I'm like, no, I didn't realise. And more importantly, we didn't have the opportunity to have a really cool scene about that. Yeah. Yeah, like that was only fun for you. It could have been fun for everyone. Yeah, it could have been fun for everyone at the table. So why would you do that? And so that's kind of how I've developed my my kind of two rules of role playing. I'm I'm very drawn to that first rule in particular when it comes to role playing in general, maybe even because I I also find GMing terrifying, and I know that there are lots of people who find role playing in general just kind of like. I'm not going to know what to say. I'm not going to know what to do. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to contribute the cool thing, but you've really tapped into like silence as a space rather than silence as just like, just absence and there's nothing good happening. Like pointing out that I think the GM has a lot of power to cultivate a particular space, whether it's like a harsh one or a boring one, or just a, yeah, just like this fertile field. I don't know, I'm very compelled by this. It kind of came out of a couple of Apocalypse World games that I played many, many years ago. It feels kind of weird saying many, many years ago about Apocalypse World, but actually it's getting on there. It's getting quite old. <laughs> so in the first couple of Apocalypse World games that I played, I read the system and I saw all the cool stuff about Hex and I was like, sex moves, that's really interesting. So presume there's going to be some really cool relationship stuff going on here because you're setting up this Hex and you've got these questions and you've got the potential for sex moves. So we're going to have some relationship stuff and brilliant. And then with the way that the games panned out and the way that the moves kind of snowballed out of control, so that you're hitting these beats quite hard of action 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 because that's the way the kind of the, the the pattern of the move or the rhythm of the moves can get sometimes and I was like oh, but I wanted to have sex with somebody and use my sex move and and have a relationship chat about that secret thing that oh, but I I guess I just I, I'll shoot that guy because he's coming at me now and oh no there's somebody else to coming at me now I'll, I'll shoot them too and it kind of and the pace of it, and I'm not saying that's a problem necessarily with Apocalypse World or, or with the GMs I had, but I think that it can be a problem sometimes that as MCs, even when the game has things like rich relationships and uh, rich relationships or kind of interesting relationship stuff that you can move, so that you can do, the thing about a sex move is you're not going to choose to do your sex move in the middle of a firefight. You're going to choose to act under fire or, you know, go aggro or something like that. So I kind of thought we it's not just that you need to have the moves there 
what gets mechanised gets done. It's that you need to make the space for them to happen. And so what I've tried to do with Bite Me is think to myself, okay, well, I, Becky, I I feel like I've got quite a good intuitive grasp when I'm emceeing of when to make space for those moves. But not everybody is me or, or lives inside my head. At least I hope not. And so what I've done is one of the things that you do with pack pool points is that when the team, the pack, are low on pack pool points, that's a good time as the MC to step back and say, okay, well, I'm going to make the space for some emotional spill conversations now so they can get that get that pack pool up again. And when they're riding really flush with pack pool points, then that's the point you want to be hitting them with threat after threat after threat after threat and get them spending them. Because I think it is hard to know. But it, you're just talking about these pool points is really making me think about the visible, tangible indicator of where, like the rhythm of the story. And maybe that is helpful. I mean, you're talking about making a game that that you can GM and enjoy when you don't necessarily enjoy GMing a lot of games. It really is making me wonder about like other people who haven't had the best experiences GMing and whether or not there's stuff that you're putting in here that's really going to work for them. I hope so. I think that I I started role playing when I was eleven, and I am quite a lot older than that now. But when I started role playing, there wasn't anything like fiasco, not really. You know, there was a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. There was probably the Traveller kicking around. Um, there was definitely like Call of Cthulhu, and some World of Darkness was coming in. And I've, you know, uh, I've got a lot of happy memories. You know. about world of darkness i've had some very happy games in there but they all had a very particular cultural way of gming where you had to internalize i don't know what a couple of hundred pages of an a4 size book of both rules and background trying to kind of keep all of that in my head at the same time as i was trying to draw these kind of experiences emotional experiences out i found it really hard and i just thought oh gosh well maybe i'm just Maybe, you know, I'm just not a natural GM. All sorts of very unhelpful things went through my head. But then I did a lot of freeform LARP and I found I was really good at it. And I think I was able to observe in freeform LARP that you needed two things to have a successful freeform LARP, that you needed space for these emotional conversations to take place because certainly in the groups that I was playing with, people really wanted to do it. So you needed to make space for it to happen particularly in the groups that I was in, if you didn't make space for it to happen, they would just like go off into a corner and do it anyway and ignore your plot, you know, which is always kind of, I found it quite nice, actually. I was like, you know what, if you're happy entertaining yourselves and I don't have to create a load of things and I'm already quite stressed, then, then, you know, be my guest. But I noticed that you can't have those emotional conversations indefinitely without the continual interjection or injection of new material new grist for the mill if as i was saying earlier on and that kind of so i built that into bite me that's why you have these fallow periods where you're having the space to have these emotional conversations there's an incentive for you to do it because if you don't you're not going to get any pack pull points and you won't be able to potentially defeat the threat and blah 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 but i also realized that the system had to allow for gm directed NPCs, GM-posited situations which would spiral out of control, 
have things happen, which would then create more material to fuel those emotional conversations. That's why dominates there. That's why given to the wolf is there. It's that you have to have the action to perpetuate the kind of the story kind of on one layer enough that it feeds and nourishes the emotional story in the second layer. Does that make sense? It sounds like you're talking about two different kinds of storytelling such that the players are never are not always doing one or the other, right? You're not always demanding action and you're not always demanding interpersonal drama that you can kind of take a break from one or the other. And at the same time, they're both, they're talking to each other. And, and I feel like that's a good feature of a lot of fiction, actually. I think it's something that comes up quite a lot in, in fiction, as you say, you know, going back to the werewolf novels that inspired me. And I, you know, when I say they're trashy, I say that with a lot of love. I don't want to be reading things like Henry Miller or stuff all the time. I want to be reading something which is emotional and fun and, you know, full of heart and things like that. And when you look at those sorts of fictions and, you know, the beats in television shows that are sort of in a similar space, I'm thinking about something like I really enjoy Timeless as a TV show. And that does similar sorts of things. It's not all emotional angst in conversations. You know, there is plot, there is things happening, but things, when the plot kicks off and the things happen and the players or the TV characters discover things, which then allows them to have the conversations because you can't just keep having those emotional conversations in a void because you do actually run out of things to angst about. Yeah, and they need more material, yeah. And each is material for, for the other. That's... Exactly. It's a closed, a closed loop, a kind of a self-perpetuating story loop that you will take decisions which inform your action because of emotional conversations you have had and that will then change other relationships requiring you to have new conversations etc etc and it reminds me a lot of reality tv particularly scripted reality tv so i went through a phase in my life of watching a lot of something called the only way is essex which is scripted reality tv and i found it absolutely compelling Absolutely compelling. And the reason I found it compelling was because it was scripted. Because as a game designer, I was looking at this from the perspective of, okay, so what mechanical rules have the script writers for this reality TV show put in place to perpetuate this drama? Because there very clearly are some mechanical rules in scripted reality TV show. And I think it's really funny when people go, oh, scripted reality TV is absolutely rubbish. It's not one thing or another. And I think it's just fascinating because if you look at it with the right lens, it's like a, it's a masterclass in storytelling. And it tells us a number of things. It tells us that people care about what other people think. And not only do people care what other people think, but people routinely tell each other what they think. So that's one thing you always see in these scripted reality TV shows. Everybody's got an opinion on everybody else's business and they are not shy in sharing it. Like in, in my personal life, I don't go around saying to my friends, gosh, why on earth did you marry your husband? He has this massive long list of flaws. I just sort of say to myself, well, you're my friend. That's your husband. That's just the way it is. But in reality TV, if I was in a reality TV show, I'd be taking my friend aside, probably several friends, probably routinely, and saying, I've seen so-and-so do such and such. He clearly doesn't treat you well enough. You should get rid of him and 
have an affair or do this or do that. And that is something that we should be doing in our role-playing games because it's not real, because it creates story. So the other thing that they do in scripted reality TV is that people always forgive each other for even the most horrific of things. So in my personal life, if somebody burst into my birthday party and shouted at me and threw a cake in my face, I would not see that person ever again. I would completely cut them out of my life. I wouldn't answer their texts. I would never have another conversation with them. And I most certainly would not invite them to my wedding or other equivalent event. I would just say, you know, our relationship is done now and I will move on and be with my other relationships and I will be very happy about that. But in reality TV, you always forgive people. You always let them back into your lives. And and that just creates more drama because either they do it again or you end up sleeping with them. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, and think of like a horror movie, right? You in the audience can be saying like, don't go in there. No, don't split up. No, uh, leave the house. But then there would be no movie. It would not be very entertaining, right? Like it just people, people just behaving in such a way that forwards the narrative. And, And you're talking really about letting everyone else know what is going on inside this character. Right. And and making that super loud and super like over the top happening. I mean, I'm thinking of the the most classic reality TV thing is the the confessional, right? The part where they're cutting to so and so staring right at the camera, sitting in a chair in some set that's set aside and saying, when she walked in, you know, doing this, the first thing I thought was this. And I decided I was going to do this. And they're just saying that. Right. And it's such a good LARP technique that I have seen used in multiple LARPs. And it's so handy because like, it's, it's super helpful for everyone else to know what is going on with that character, their intentions, their motivations, their reactions, all that stuff, while still allowing you to have a scene where, you know, there's some sort of plausible reaction. Like we all, we all react in ways that hide how we really feel. And so you can still have this authentic interaction because you're just going to cut right to the confessional and be like, I was furious. And I would also encourage people that in a lot of those confessional situations, they're often, as you say, in kind of a a sort of a black box room, just a camera and stuff. I would say, have those confessionals to the other players. Yeah, exactly. Don't do it in in alone in a room to a camera. Do it to another player. You know, that's, you know, ramp that tension up. Expose your, expose your dirty heart and your, you know, your your kind of venal kind of uh, or terrified motivations, you know, let somebody else know what's going on with that. And I, so yeah, I think that role players in particular, we have no business being sniffy about reality TV. That is a masterclass in creating compelling, rich emotional drama again and again and again. I was, and you're you're actually the second person to say this. I have a friend who was just posting about Survivor on Twitter the other day and saying, you know, as a game designer, you've got to watch this because to see how they change the rules as, as, you know, fans of the show are now on the show and they know the rules and they switch it up. And the host is basically like a GM, like he's the facilitator who, you know, lets everybody sets the scene and holds the space and lets everybody know the rules and, you know, holds, elicits people's reactions and I, you're you're um you're really making me consider this thing, and I I catch bits of reality TV 
from time to time, but I haven't really sat down and and spent time with it. And I think you're right. You've got to find something that that is that you're okay watching. A long time ago in the UK, there was a reality, a really weird reality TV show. I can't remember it how long ago it was or even what channel it was on or, and I certainly can't remember what it was called but Josh and I watched the whole thing and what they did was they took a bunch of people and said you are going to be trained to go on the first public mission into space oh and they had them in like a dome like a bubble kind of thing yeah they had them like a bunker or something they had them in like a bunker uh, or like they, so they took them away. They said they'd taken them away to Russia. They they hadn't. They'd taken them away to like Kent or something. I can't remember. They they never left England. But they said they were taking them away to Russia to train with Russian cosmonauts. And then they they made them sit through days and days and days of space training. But they would like throw in like ridiculous things to see how far they could push it before anybody realized that it wasn't real space training. And there was a plant. One of the people who had got through the kind of the auditions was actually an actor who was feeding lines and it was amazing like as a storyteller and as a as a game designer watching this was amazing because I remember Josh and I would just watch this tv show and we would look at each other and I would say okay well now that this thing's just happened the next thing I would do is I would have one of the NPCs come in and ball them all out and really like really start screaming and shouting at them and saying, you know, loads of people applied to be here. I can get a replacement at any time, blah, blah, blah. Lo and behold, 10 minutes later, that's what happened. And and I think that that sort of thing, it's just, what that is, it goes back to what you said about letting people see under the hood. What these scripted reality TV shows and, and similar are doing is that they are letting you see under the hood of what makes compelling storytelling. You're right, because it, it, all, it is all so explicit. Yeah, exactly. It's very clear what they're doing. You know, all the manipulations that they are putting pe- on people, you know, the ways that they're manipulating the storyline, the ways they're setting up conversations, and then, you know, there's, there'll be two people in the bar having an illicit conversation, and so one, so-and-so's best friend walks past, all that stuff, all of that stuff. That is under the hood of compelling emotional drama. I sound a bit too keen about that, don't I? Maybe I should dial that no, back down again. Exciting. You may find it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's it's messing with me that that you're not the first person to say this. And I'm thinking like I'm thinking back to to reality TV that I watched um, many years ago when that was when it was kind of a new thing. We uh, we should probably wrap up. Where so obviously, uh, bite me is in in production. It sounds very exciting, very thrilling, and sexy and carnal. And Lovecraft-esque is a game that is out there and people can play. Um, You can find uh, When the Dark is Gone in the Seven Wonders anthology. If people just want to keep up with uh, your game's development and other things that you're up to, where should they go? So we have a website, um, www.blackarmada.com. Um, and there's a mailing list on there. There's, we have a blog on there, but there's also a mailing list you can sign up for, which we pretty much use about twice a year. So it really will not be too much of a toll on your inbox, I hope. Um, and I'm on Twitter uh, at Becky Anison. Awesome. We'll have links to all that uh, in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming out. This was extremely fun. And we talked about so many cool, fun things. Thank you. Thank you so much.
thanks again to Becky for joining me. And as always, thank you for listening. Reminder that if you like Backstory, you can leave us a rating or a review in your favorite podcasting app. It helps new people find the show. And also, I love it. If you have thoughts on today's episode, you can always email backstorypodcast at gmail.com or tweet at backstorycast. Backstory is hosted by me, Alex Roberts, and produced by the talented Alex Sisk. We're proud to be part of the One Shot Podcast Network, which includes a bunch of awesome RPG-related shows, including System Mastery. System Mastery is a delightful stroll through the history of role-playing games, except that the games are terrible and the hosts are real jerks about everything. Join hosts Jeff and John as they explore the weirdest games ever made to talk about what worked, what went wrong, and which Silverhawk was the best. Just kidding, it was Hot Wing, don't even add them. Find their shows at systemmasterypodcast.com. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can find more by searching U-J-I-C-O on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever else you get your chill beats. Talk to you later, friends. Thank you.